Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about fertility preservation options for cancer patients with Dr. Lubna Paul and Dr. Cindy Duke. Dr. Paul is Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science, and Dr. Duke is Clinical Instructor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Wow, this is such an important area, and I'm so glad you're here uh, because, of course, in my practice, which... um, is hematologic malignancy, and we have a lot of younger patients who have are being treated for leukemia or lymphoma. Um, this is something that all the patients are worrying about, and um, so it's really incredible. What what do we do? Who's who's who is a candidate for fertility preservation, and and who should be thinking about it? Well, quite honestly, most patients are reproductive age, and by reproductive age, we define that as patients anywhere between birth through age 40 to 45. Uh, certainly for a patient faced with cancer, <clears throat> it's a big consideration, particularly if they hadn't really given thought to family building prior to the diagnosis. Um, I think any patient in that age group and that range is at least a candidate for counseling. Hmm. So let, let's start with um, adult patients, because I, I hadn't even thought about the pediatric issues. Wow. Uh, just shows how I think about my own, my own, uh, my own world. Um, but so, uh, so I'm typically faced with a, um, a, an adult patient of reproductive age uh, who is facing uh, a hematologic emergency. That is, they've, they've got a cancer that, that needs to be treated. And um, you know, what, what should I tell the patient? Are, if they're going to get chemotherapy, are they necessarily going to become infertile? Well, honestly, that depends on the therapy being offered. So not all chemotherapeutic drugs are not equal, so to speak. Neither is radiation therapy. So in terms of the patient, there are a number of factors that go into the counseling. Uh, that includes age of the patient, the drug, the agent being used, um, certain classes of chemotherapeutic drugs, such as the alkylating agents, which include things like cyclophosphamide, ifosfamide, um, are known to be greater risks to the ovarian function, specifically in terms of risk related to developing menopause or infertility and infertility in the future. Um, Other risks include the amount of the drug, so not just the type of drug, but the dose of the drug or the duration of therapy. And in the case of radiation, likewise, the dose of the radiation. Mm -hmm. So... 
could could I oh, just please, expand? absolutely. Um, so a couple of things worth mentioning. I, while our focus is women, I do believe men cannot be ignored, young men and young women. Well, I was going to say something. <laughs> absolutely. So two concepts. One is that disease itself may have detrimental implications for gamete biology. So cancer diagnosis in of itself, plenty of data to support by the time somebody is sick enough to be diagnosed, already the sperm are being compromised and already the ovarian function has been compromised. Now the difference here is men are making sperm all the time. Women are born with a retirement account, if you will. So the damage to female biology has much lasting implications than to men's biology. Hmm. And that needs to be appreciated. Hmm. Secondly, the severity of disease at the time of presentation. Thirdly, what Cindy mentioned, all the aspects that need to be entertained that, you know, we are focusing so much on improving longevity and we are succeeding, but it's the quality of that life. We, now that we have gained longevity, what's happening to that individual? <laughs> and reproductive function, parenting, and ovarian biology, which translates into overall health. So early menopause relates to a slew of medical problems. So it's not just, even though we're talking fertility preservation, we're really talking about quality of life and health of the individual. So. Interesting. So, so let's, getting back to the men for just a second, mm-hmm. I was taught a long time ago, and maybe it's not true anymore, but that because what you mentioned, that the quality of the sperm production is often compromised in somebody who's acutely ill with something like acute leukemia. Back at my former institution at Johns Hopkins, in general, we didn't recommend semen banking uh, at the time of diagnosis. Has that changed at all? So... Um a few technological advances that have really happened over the last 20 years or so, not that I'm, I'm dating us here, but, you know, you need five sperm to be able to fertilize five eggs to achieve a live birth. We are in a, such a different place now that also, you're absolutely right, compromised semen when frozen may yield very poor numbers, but you would still get a few live sperm. Gotcha. Who that's could, all it that takes. could all it takes. Whereas the prognosis, depending if you were going to do whole body radiation, um, that's it for that guy. Right. So, so it really so pays. What it, right. It pays to save and then you know revisit. Uh, there are plenty of patients who have survived, are in a better place, have recovered. Spermatogenesis has recovered not to normal range, but to a range that we can achieve uh, pregnancy. And we always recommend go with the fresh sperm. But in the event it does not recover, you have something. Money in the bank, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) That's probably a joke you guys say all the time, right? (laughs) But it is so, you know, people understand it so much more. It's so palpable. Gotcha. So, so what do we do? Can I get a consultation for patients at any time in, in this kind of situation? We do. We offer a 24-hour, seven-day-per-week service uh, here at the Cancer Center. We see patients both as an outpatient, as an inpatient. So oftentimes, in your patient population included, the diagnosis is made while the patient is admitted to the hospital and their therapy is initiated during that first admission. So we would actually come to the patient. Um, In terms of our male patients, we have a sister service that's part of the umbrella of our fertility center. A brother service. service, actually, correct, (laughs) so to speak, and they uh, offer the sperm banking or cryopreservation services, Mm -hmm. but we will be, as the fellows on the service, we still 
serve as part of that initial initial consult. Interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess for our listeners, and hopefully none of them will have cancer, um, but unfortunately we know that some people will, and, and I, I can say as a practitioner that it always helps me when a patient brings up the fertility Absolutely. issue uh, just because that's something that people think about a lot about themselves, and we're so busy trying to save the patient's life oftentimes that it's not always the first thing on our we're trying to get better about that actually you know i think from our end that really is the message that we need to to be disseminated it's the patient's prerogative people need to be aware what technology can offer them and we as providers need to put on the table long-term implications for reproduction recognizing patients you're dealing with life and death at that moment but Part of our responsibility is at least putting it on the table for patient to consider. Plenty of literature to support survivors. The one thing that they verbalize frustration with that I wish somebody had included me in the decision making. At least brought it up. Absolutely. Right? And the options really. T- from the time delay perspective, for men, a single day, a few hours is all that needs for them to bank something. For women, at an average, it takes about a week to 10 days, but you can expedite options to match the needs of urgency for the patient, provided hmm. the patient, it is, that is what the patient is seeking. So, so what are we talking about for women? What are the options for an adult, younger adult woman who uh, wants to maximize her fertility preservation but needs semi-urgent treatment, say. Correct. Uh, Recognizing that need, we have a number of streamlined processes. Um, The gold standard for fertility preservation in a young woman is embryo cryopreservation, which means harvesting eggs from a patient. That takes anywhere between 7 to 10 days, as Dr. Paul uh, alluded to, and then pairing it with sperm and producing embryos that we then freeze that the patient can access following her treatment. However, in a patient who does not have a partner or younger patients, we offer oocyte or egg freezing, which is much less with embryo freezing, we can harvest the eggs and then freeze those. Once the patient is better and ready to start her family, then we thaw the eggs, fertilize them with either her partner's sperm, or if she still doesn't have a partner, we offer donor sperm that she can choose from and make an embryo and then transfer that embryo into her uterus and she gets pregnant, carries a baby. Um, Those are the primary options. Other options include ovarian tissue freezing. So for the patient who may be undergoing surgery to remove her ovaries, we can uh, freeze some strips of tissue from her ovary and later on re-implant that. Hmm. Uh, Other options would include um, use of medications. This is the most utilized, actually, here at Yale Cancer Center, use of medications to suppress ovarian function prior to initiation of therapy. However, although the data says it's good for, at least it's been looked at, its effectiveness for resumption of menses or return of her period, uh, there's not enough data yet to speak to whether or not this is sufficient to Im- improve return of fertility for the patient. I see. So let's go back to this egg harvesting that you've talked about. Um, how do you do that? I mean, you said seven to 10 days. Do, do the women have to take hormones uh, like you would if you were having getting ready for in vitro? Correct. It's similar to in vitro. So the principles are the same in that we give the woman medications to help 
trigger stimulate her ovaries to stimulate what a pool of eggs so that we can then mature them somewhat and retrieve them. In terms of egg harvesting for egg freezing, we retrieve them slightly earlier than we would if we were going on to em- IVF for embryo development. Oh. Um, and then we freeze those. The data is actually really good in terms of the ability to thaw those eggs and then fertilize them later. And so it's actually considered now standard of care. So um, just to thank so much, Cindy, that sort of sums it up. Just to clarify for the um, people who are on the other end. Um, So in female biology, every month there's a little marathon happening in our ovaries. A bunch of eggs start to grow, but one continues to grow. And that growth sprint is about a two-week period in female biology. So of the it's like a marathon, right? Only one is the winner. Everything else just stops down at multiple stages. And fertility treatment really aims at harvesting and s- sort of salvaging the entire group of runners to continue the run. Mm. Um, now, in a healthy female who is undergoing fertility-related procedure because she's keen on getting pregnant, we have all the time in our hands. Right. So we capture those runners, let them run till the maximal time point where we have a good group of larger size ovarian follicles developing. And then it's a tiny, simple office procedure where transvaginally under ultrasound guidance, patients are awake. They're a little bit sedated. Uh, we do a procedure where we go and collect the eggs transvaginally, uh, ultrasound guided needle through the wall of the vagina into the ovaries to suck out the eggs. So that's the uh, and so the uh, scientific aspect is the same, but depending on the urgency of time that we have for a sicker patient, we can shorten we can really sort of expedite the race a little bit. We don't have to capture all the runners. We can go and capture whatever is available to us. Hmm. We can even, if we land up getting immature eggs, we can even mature them in vitro outside the body to allow them to reach a point where freezing would be optimal. So we have strategies for using certain medications for women, such as with breast cancer diagnosis, where we don't want too high of a hormone level within the patient's body. So we can use agents which actually dampen, continue the running, but dampen her own hormonal profile. So we can strategize and utilize the protocol. Again, the goal is if a patient perceives that that is her choice, and if her oncologist perceives that there is that time flexibility available, it can be expedited in a very safe manner. Well, this is fascinating, and we're going to want to talk more about this after the break for sure. But right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about fertility preservation options for cancer patients with Drs. Duke and Paul. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Survivorship Clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven.
More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Cindy Duke and Dr. Lubna Paul. We are discussing fertility preservation. Uh, Cindy and Lubna, before the break, uh, you were really presenting me with very fascinating information about how you can harvest these reasonably immature eggs, it sounds like, and uh, and cryopreserve them or freeze them uh, viably. What's the success rate of using such eggs uh, down the road when the person is ready to uh, conceive? So we measure our success rates by looking at the potential for live birth, so a take-home baby. And the success rate is between 25 and 40%. Uh, so if we're successfully able to thaw, 25 to 40% of the eggs can be fertilized and uh, implanted and result in a live baby. And the success rates for thaw rates are pretty high and um, about even around the country and around the world, actually. So, so uh, just to expand on that, yes, till please. a couple of years back, oocyte, egg cryopreservation was experimental. Now it's considered standard of care hmm. because the yield is phenomenally high in terms of um, you know technological advances. So there are parts of the world where oocyte banking is now happening, mm-hmm. including our center where women at different stages of reproductive life who may who are not ready to move on with fertility just yet. Either they do not have a partner or they are being committed to a career where they have to postpone things for a while. Um, Women have an option of just banking their eggs for a future use in the event um, they land up having problems Hmm. with fertility. So it's a standard of care now. Now, when you say it's in the range of 25 to 40% success rate, is that per attempt or is that sort of the the, the big picture so, is so, about 40% chance of getting pregnant so at some point. Crudely, crudely speaking, of course. Um, embryo cryopreservation, pound for pound, embryo cryopreservation gives you a much higher likelihood for success than egg cryopreservation. So the only reason to freeze the single cell egg is when you don't have a sperm available to fertilize it. Hmm. And that's really when you are a single woman um, without a commitment to a sperm source. Mm-hmm. Or adolescent. Um, or in a, even adolescence, right. No sperm is the reason. Uh-huh. Is, there, is it ever practiced that people get donor sperm when they're single at this stage of the game, knowing that they might eventually have a partner? Or is that really not considered the edge of ethics? So, you know, I have to say it's a fine the ethics is a fine line um it's really the patient's prerogative i personally have had patients who have single women who choose to undergo donor sperm related fertility treatment have undergone egg retrieval and have banked a few eggs for the possibility if they come across somebody and want to have a child with that partner but still are ready in their life to pursue fertility so they choose to move on with donor sperm, but yet have have something have in the something bank. in the bank in the for that eventuality. And likewise, for the patient who has a partner, some of them choose to do half of the half as embryos, so fertilize half and freeze the other half as eggs. Really? Well, that yeah, that really doesn't say much for the relationship, but an occasional <laughs> an occasional occasional patient may. I see. I thought you were just thinking that the priority would be, you know, if they could have a baby the natural way in the future, that would be preferable no. or something. No, I see. It's saving for a rainy day again. Yeah. 
So, Again, patient driven. So the patients yeah. decide there are many permutations and they pick how they want it to happen. Fascinating. So, so let's talk about the younger, uh, younger girl, really. We're talking about girls now. I, I guess we've got prepubescent girls mm-hmm. and then we've got uh, post-puberty girls, adolescent girls. Um, who uh, unfortunately have cancer and need to be treated aggressively. So what are the issues there? There are a number of factors to think of. Certainly in a prepubescent or a postpubescent adolescent girl, we're also talking about usually broaching the topic of childbearing in someone who's never considered it. Uh, So a lot of this decision-making is also borne by the parents or the caregivers. So it's a team, it's a family discussion. It's a discussion recognizing that they may be a surrogate making a decision for a much younger patient who will then revisit the idea later. So again, it's sort of that rainy day savings account and planning ahead for potential wishes of this patient. Certainly a pre-pubertal patient, some of the challenges to fertility preservation are that this patient has not undergone uh, puberty yet. So that that pool of eggs, the marathon, hasn't started. They're all lined up at the race. However, it's important to also remember that she still was born with a finite number of runners. And so therapies, although they're less um, likely to affect her eggs as if as in if she were post-pubertal, there's still effects. So there are things that we do to protect patients, including if they're about to receive radiation, doing gonadal shielding, um, surgeries sometimes for patients where we lift the ovaries outside of the field of radiation or cold transposition of the ovaries. Uh, So those are some options. And also uh, tissue freezing, if it came to it, we can certainly take strips of ovarian tissue and freeze <laughs> for the patient. So ovarian tissue, so our options are limited for prepubescent kids because we really have ovarian tissue cryopreservation as the probably, and other than the physical maneuvers of um, shielding from the area of ex- um, radiation exposure. Um, important consideration is what kind of cancer. So hematological cancer, certain types of cancers do metastasize to the ovary, lymphomas, for example. Mm. So that needs to be considered that, you know, I can salvage and save the tissue, but what if the tissue has cancer in it? So one also has to keep in mind what kind of cancer am I dealing with? Now, some, again, this is this is the experimental realm now. It's an option available, and we at Yale are offering ovarian tissue cryopreservation, but as an experimental strategy, mm-hmm. because we've not had live births. Patients have not come back and have had their tissue retransplanted to for us to get um, an idea of success. But it is reported um, yeah, multiple, multiple right, so births have happened. But for prepubescent kids, really consideration about type of cancer, which could potentially involve the ovarian tissue, is a consideration. Um, anecdotally and, again, experimentally, um, harvesting immature eggs from that ovarian tissue so that you are completely... Um, removing that likelihood of contamination by cancer cells has been described. Hmm. We are not doing that yet at Yale, but in literature, 
that has been described as a potential strategy. Hmm. So families just need to be aware of that. But uh, unless they're getting stem cell transplants uh, or a lot of radiation, many young girls will recover fertility. Is that not right after treatment? So as Cindy had said, the younger you are, the chances of salvage, residual salvage and spontaneous resumption is much higher. Unfortunately, there is no, you know, there's no globe for us to look into to say this is a kid who would be completely fine. Mm -hmm. And even though the survivors have resumption or initiation of spontaneous menses, their long-term reproductive hiatus tends to be shorter. So, so they have a, a so shorter window. Th- they have a short, right. So part of this whole, so the dialogue still should be happening. You know, these are the girls maybe in their early to mid-20s should be planning um, their reproductive future as opposed to their peers. Their biological yeah, the clock biological, is yeah. uh, ticking faster. Right, right. As premature menopause may be a factor for them. Really? Mm-hmm. So do you actually screen for that or... Um, we just just let them know if you're having hot flashes. No, <laughs> Take I, it seriously. I, I think you know it's a great question, and it's in some ways it's even a more profound question than addressing fertility preservation because that has implicate your ovarian hormonal profile has implications for the rest of your biology. Sure. And by the time we are catching hot flashes and irregular periods, we have already missed the boat. Mm. So I think counseling every visit. Assessment needs to happen every visit. Markers need, you know, the the patients need to be sensitized what to be looking out for. Um, That includes things like have your periods changed. So it's great that they came back, but are they regular? Are you noticing them Mm -hmm. spacing out or getting really close together? Uh, These things tend to predate even the hot flashes and sleep disturbance. And yet another thing, young girls decide to use contraceptives for you know, lifestyle choice, as a lifestyle choice, your innate biology gets masked. So you don't know what's happening when you are having withdrawal bleeding on contraceptives. Hmm. So unless I, the clinician, am sensitized to be bringing this up, if a kid comes from a family where the mother became menopausal at age 38, and now the kid has gone through this exposure, chances are that she maybe for her lifetime may have an even shorter window. Hmm. But... Um, and, and at the end of the day, the discussion really is about hormones you can address. You can, you know, optimize in an in a artificial way. But gametes, you can't do much. Right. Um, uh, for, for, the, for the girl or young woman who's on, uh, who chooses to be on oral contraceptives, mm-hmm. once they're on the hormonal intervention, you can't really monitor what's going on. Not in the, reliably, right? no. Correct. Not one strong recommendation has been maybe at the start of therapy and following uh, therapy, at least one marker, which is anti-Mullerian hormone or AMH level. Mullerian, is that? Mullerian, Mullerian. Yes. Not and malaria. Not malaria. No, it's Mullerian. For our, for our listeners. <laughs> Correct. So it's anti-Mullerian hormone. And this is a hormone that's actually made by the ovaries, and it's a very good marker for the number, potential number of eggs, so the huh. pool, the number of marathoners. Um, yet another caveat, though, AMH is a good, it's a reliable marker for egg quantity. Correct. It's not a reliable marker when somebody is using hormonal contraceptives. Mm-hmm. I see. Because, again, it's, it's those marathon runners, they need to run a little bit to be producing this marker. <laughs> So when you are on a contraceptive for years at a stretch, hormonal contraceptive, everything gets slowed down. Gotcha. So it, 
it's no more reliable. Secondly, somebody who's really sick at the time of their presentation, girls tend to start having irregular periods or stop having their periods when they present with a cancer type diagnosis. Mm. And at that point too, AMH may not be a reliable reflector. But that's all that we have right now as one of the most sensitive of available biomarkers for egg quantity. Do you recommend alternative contraceptive choices for these uh, young women? So you recommend a reliable contraceptive. So hormonal contraceptive is an excellent choice. It's not that it's harming them. It's just mitigating the underlying manifestation. Right. Right. So it's not that you want that flag to be raised because your clinical surveillance, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it was what kind of cancer, when was she presented, how much was the radiation, how much was the dose, what kind of chemo. So that builds up her profile. So I do believe reliable contraception, and if that is hormonal, then she takes hormonal. Little bit of estrogen-based hormonal contraceptive approach also adds to her skeletal well-being. Um, but yeah. it's not comparable to your endogenous, your own hormones. Gotcha. Um, How widespread is the um, uh, knowledge among uh, gynecologists about uh, how to manage women who are cancer survivors. It, uh, I mean, I have to tell you, having been at Yale only for uh, 11 months now, I'm really impressed uh, with the approach here, which is much more aggressive than the institution from which I came in terms of attention uh, both to fertility preservation and this kind of post-survivorship uh, attention to uh, reproductive function. So, you know, if you're, you know, many of my patients... Uh, you know, were followed by their gynecologists in the community. Uh, and I've always sort of assumed they knew what to do. Is that is that the case? I think it's variable. Um, I couldn't tell you an exact number to say it's 60%, 70% of our community providers or our community of providers uh, has a standard procedure. So I would say it's variable. However, um, we that's part of one of the things we're doing, which is working to increase awareness and some uniformity in terms of the standard uh, across the community. Hmm. So I would concur with Cindy, but at the same time say that I think the awareness needs to be better all around, not just amongst OBGYNs, but also amongst oncologists. Because I think we as a, there needs to be dialogue. Dr. Lubna Paul is Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science, and Dr. Cindy Duke is Clinical Instructor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.